The vehicle carrying this man, Arturo Rivas Baca, the assistant chief of Tijuana's municipal police, sits riddled with bullets. Masked gunmen storm a jewelry store in Monterey, Mexico, and shoot down the police chief and other shoppers. 160 bullet casings cover the pavement after a vicious gun battle in the streets of Tijuana. Ed Calderon had been tracking the footprints of the devil for years by the time cartel killings had become almost commonplace. Even in cities like Ciudad Juarez, which you can walk to from El Paso, Texas in just a few minutes. Ciudad Juarez is one of the most dangerous cities in the world because of fierce turf wars between drug cartels. 3,000 were murdered there last year. The latest victims are three teenagers. Two crossed over from El Paso over the weekend to visit a friend. Their bullet-riddled bodies were visible as investigators combed the area. In 2011, following countless boots-on-the-ground missions in Mexico with his paramilitary brothers-in-arms, shedding blood, sharing tears, chasing cartels, and doing it all again the next day, Ed received a new job protecting executive-level individuals. Instead of kicking in doors, it was an assignment that would take him, for the first time, further away from the front lines. One of his biggest concerns now, he said, was how to tie his tie. Would he be presentable enough in his clothes? It should have been some of Ed's first days without the worries of his previous everyday life. But it took less than a week for him to get a gruesome reminder that death was still on his heels. And it was a moment, it seems, he will never forget. I was operational. When you say operational down there, I was I was out there kicking doors in. I was uh, taking all the risky jobs. Uh, I, I, I was a bodyguard for... Lieutenant Colonel Lizola when he first got uh, named director of the unit that I was in. Um, and that man had a few dozen assassination attempts on him. It's kind of hard to talk about it, but in a lot of ways it was pretty self-destructive and suicidal. Um, but that was the nature of the job, you know. You, would, you, would, you, don't, you wouldn't even think about vacation time. You just, you're out there lost with your friends doing you know, the work you were doing and it was all about them and you and all of you making it back safe and partying and celebrating and then repeating it the next day. I got my orders in um, and the orders stated that I was to report to another office where I was going to be tasked uh, with um, a high level executive protection uh, type uh, job which would mean that I was out of the game. I was out of the uh, whole, the giant game of hide and seek that I was, <laughs> that I had been playing for a few years. And uh, which was, you know, basically my time was done there. You know, I was relieved. Uh, you know, kind of like uh, putting a bullet in a, in a revolver, spinning it and not having that round go off. Uh, I was relieved that I was alive. I was, but felt guilty. Felt really guilty about uh, about that. Kind of had to hide myself in a room to to kind of like cry about uh, cry about the uh, way I felt. You know, I felt felt lucky. I was out. I lived. Um, I was a. Uh, 
it was not a normal thing. That that's not how usually that's not how it work, would work out usually. Uh, but I felt so guilty leaving. You know, uh, I saw some of the faces of people around me that they were happy for me, but also in a lot of ways I I felt like I was not. Uh, I didn't want to leave them, but I also didn't want to, fucking, you know, die there. I picked up everything and said goodbye to all of those guys. Um, swore to keep in touch, you know, that whole thing. Um, and uh, a few nights later, I was uh, sitting in a hotel, getting my stuff ready for work. You know, I was I was wearing a suit now. So I was trying to figure out the tie. On the news, uh, my some of the replacements I got that, that were sent in for me uh, were on the news uh, laid out on the street. They got ambushed. Uh, they got ambushed outside of the uh, outside of my former uh, former boss's house. Um, all of them young, all of them new, kind of green. Some of them died seating in the car. So they didn't uh, they didn't get out and adopt any sort of cover positions when they got there, which was a mistake. Um, a lot of them bled out through the legs, and none of them were carrying around tourniquets, and none of them were had that medical training behind them. Um, I did, and some of the guys that were with me did. So all of a sudden, all these guys are there, uh, and they're gone. And I'm gone, and um, I think that was my first. Uh, I think that was my first kind of mental breakdown I had as far as survival skills. I just felt so guilty of not for not being there. Uh, although you know, if I was there, I probably you know, would have ended up uh, on the ground too. I don't know. Uh, but you know, doubt goes into your mind, and then you, these things uh, start circling. And I couldn't keep my eyes off the TV, and uh, they're pretty insensitive about recording bodies uh, in the news uh, down there. There's no sort of a protocol, so in, there was no sort of protocol back then. So you were seeing these faces that you kind of knew, and you're seeing some of the uniforms that you recognize, and some of the equipment that they had. You're trying to do mental calculations of how you could have done things differently, and you're uh, you're safe somewhere else in a hotel, with your biggest worry being uh, shining your shoes and figuring out the uh, correct knot for your tie for work the next day. And uh, when you were moved from one office to the other, basically uh, all connections kind of get severed, so you're not part of that network anymore. So you can't really call anybody directly. So. You know, I was gone, I was out, but I was still in, in my head and in my heart. Um, I didn't sleep that night. I uh, didn't sleep uh, a lot of nights after that. The, that was uh, the kind of the uh, the first manifestation of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, issues that I would later have with uh, trying to process all the, all the stuff that I did and all the experiences I had down there. The survivor's guilt and trauma that Ed experienced while on the job in Mexico are things he's still trying to heal from to this day.
But while the emotional anguish that came from his work may have begun that night, it was when Ed received yet another set of new orders a short time later, just a few years into his 30s, that he found himself in what he believes was truly a life or death situation. One that forced Ed to call on some friends he had made in the United States Marine Corps and Naval Special Warfare, or NSW, who helped him literally run for his life. When I finally left uh, government service, uh, basically the, it was it was one of those uh, no choice. No, there's you know there's no choice. Uh, when there's a doubt, there is no doubt. Uh, I called into the office. Um, all these people there basically make me a job offer. They want me to work with them on this new project, and it's basically going to go after a single cartel, not all cartel presence. So basically they were going to be working for a single side of the fight, which means that they were probably on the take. Uh, I get this offer and this, this offer comes probably a, like a, like a month after I, lo- I lost my mom. Uh, uh, she, she passed away and that kind of really made, you know, me think about things. I got offered this new job and, you know, I could, I could, I could saw right through the offer and I saw what it was. And I said, hey, you know what? Let me think about it. I left the office, handed over all my things and resigned that same day. Uh, there was a lot of heat on me <laughs> because I did that. A lot of people trying to figure out what I was doing. And um, uh, thank God I had some amazing people in my life, um, some amazing Americans in my life, uh, uh, so, uh, some people from NSW that that uh, had become uh, very close people and friends and family, and some uh, some people from the uh, United States Marine Corps, which I will always be indebted to. That basically went down there and extracted me from a very clearly bad situation. Uh, and I left, you know, I, I went to the U.S. And, 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 and went through the process of gaining my uh, citizenship. And that's uh, that was my exit. Right? A lot of the people that were in that same office didn't get that opportunity or didn't have those options. Um, a lot of them left the job as well. Um, some very high level people. I mean, um, some of these people were elite people, you know, some some people with a lot of training, a lot of government training on the U.S. side and the Mexican side. Um, some people that have vast amounts of knowledge in the uh, you know, digital surveillance uh, field. Um, some of them had uh, counterterrorism training, uh, explosives, uh, long-range shooting, um, operational experience uh that uh, would span the course of 20 years, 25 years. Uh, amazing people, amazing assets to the country if they could have been kept. <laughs> um, a lot of them left the job and were basically hired on by, uh, by a few cartels out there that were paying way more. And, uh, and are to this day still in a kind of recruitment uh, frenzy. Uh, hiring all these uh, talented, highly trained individuals 
most of them went to work for for one of the one of the bigger cartels uh, in Mexico, the the New Generation Cartel. Um, and they took with them, you know, experience, training, um, up-to-date tactics, uh, contacts, uh, the ability to go across borders. Uh, so a lot of these guys had, you know, their passports and visas and bilingual, multilingual in some cases. Um, highly educated in a lot of cases. Um, it's a new Frankenstein monster that was created. And uh, I think you can see elements of what that uh, talent that was bought by some of these cartels is now doing to their ability to maintain and expand control over the country. Good soldiers like Ed were literally fleeing the corruption infecting Mexico's law enforcement ranks. Others in his field went further into darkness and succumbed to the temptations of plata o plomo. And the cartels Ed had been beating back for years did anything but fade away. Moments ago, brand new reaction from the president after nine Americans were shot dead in an apparent ambush. A massacre just south of the U.S. border in early November 2019 served as a devastating reminder of Ed's former life. The victims, all women and children from a prominent Mormon family. What a story this is, still developing now. Three women and six children now confirmed dead after they were shot and killed on the way to a wedding. Allegations swirled that these killings could somehow have been planned attacks or that the victims were part of criminal activity themselves. Ed says he had experience with the people on both sides of that incident and that nothing could have been further from the truth. I was in contact with some of the members of that family um, years before that. Um, I, uh, I I got to I got to you know exchange emails with some of them and uh, actually met some of them. They didn't realize that I was a cop back then, but. <laughs> I actually met some of them back when they were defending their uh, their communities from the cartels. Uh, they basically armed themselves discreetly. And, uh, they fought off uh, cartel presence in, in some of the communities they had. Um, then later on in life, uh, you know, this this happens. Um, and uh, I remember when it happened, it, uh, it wasn't getting a lot of cover- coverage on the U.S. side. Uh, like the few, the first few hours that it happened, and I posted it on my uh, Instagram account, kind of doing an explanation or a breakdown of what I, I was seeing. Then I got contacted by some of the members of the family again. They shared a bit more information, and I, I try, I tried to help them uh, by kind of getting the word out and you know seeing how I could help them, basically. Um. It was a it was a massacre of women and children in the desert that made a wrong turn. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people theorizing that they were that, that the, their family was involved in, in drug dealing and criminal activity. Uh, all those people need to kind of realize that this these were cars filled with women and children, and they were not doing anything. Uh, they were not doing any drug running of, of any kind out there. They made the mistake of going down a wrong turn and a wrong road um, and in a very bad place that is currently being fought over 
by uh, at least two or three cartel groups because of its mining potential. That's the reason why those people were killed, because they thought they were mistaken for counter or rival cartel groups moving into the territory. And that's why all those people died. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. We'll return right after this brief break. Ed says given his personal experiences, it's clear that Mexico's cartels are nothing short of terrorist organizations and that those murders should have been proof positive. However. He points out that even in the wake of those killings, there are still no Mexican cartels on the U.S. State Department list of foreign terrorist organizations. And he thinks it's due to the potential chilling effect that designation might have on immigration. The amount of brutality seen in that attack uh, is something that is very commonplace in, in Mexico. It happens every day. But the fact that these were Americans in those cars. Yes, they had dual citizenship, uh, but let's not, you know, let's not detract the fact that they were Americans and that they were women and children. And in, in, in one case, it was an infant. This happens and, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, whole terrorist designation conversation starts. People are ta- start, start talking about, you know, we'll designate them, as, let's, let's do a cartel terrorist designation so we can really go after them. And then, you know, they walk back that designation uh, conversation, uh, probably because of the, uh, the whole immigration crisis that might happen when now all the people that are want to go migrate to the U.S. now have an asylum claim uh, of them being persecuted by a terrorist group instead of being, you know, just, uh, just being uh, run out of their towns by cartels. Uh, a lot of people make the argument that they're not cartels are not uh, terrorist or terrorist organizations, and they always mention the fact be, be, that they don't have a clear political uh, kind of aim or motive. Uh, we also have to think about that Mexico has one of the larger, uh, more prevalent uh, cases of the politicians being killed in the world. Uh, political candidates get killed, uh, mayors get killed. You know, it's it's a common thing, you know. Uh, so clearly, some of these cartel groups do have political motivations. Some of these cartels do have a vested interest in certain politics or certain members of the government being in place of power. Uh, they meet every single definition to most Mexicans uh, of a terrorist organization. You know, they hang people from bridges. They torture people to death in videos. Actually, ISIS was influenced by the cartel videos being placed online, how they were basically used as a psychological warfare tool. You know, they meet all these definitions, but for some reason, uh, the, the U.S. government decided to walk back that designation. Um, what happened in that desert, I thought was, was what was going to really push the American people into taking action of some sort. Um, but uh, it didn't happen that way. You know, that massacre, shocking and horrible as it was, and I think it was horrible, um, 
what was more shocking and horrible for me, how that basically got just faded away into the background. And uh, then a new cycle, you know. Ed says the murders of those families in the desert should have served as a wake-up call for the international community, or at least the U.S. And he points out that the effect Mexico's cartels are having on the quality of life for Mexicans, Americans, and the world can still be seen. While battling a coronavirus pandemic, U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers are working nonstop to intercept illegal drug activity at the U.S.-Mexico border. In Tucson, Arizona, officers say they've seen a recent spike in meth and fentanyl. Ed says the cartels have already won the war in many places back in Mexico, and some of them have been winning for a long time. But he believes that if other countries don't start paying attention soon, and helping in this fight against Mexico's criminal infestation, these problems will wind up on their doorsteps very soon. My theory is, my forecast is, you're gonna probably see some sort of civil unrest uh, or some sort of cartel violent flare up event on the border that's gonna spill into the US in some very dramatic way and we'll probably see some sort of armed intervention by the U.S. at some point during the next five years here in Mexico. I think that's safe to say that you will have to be, as a country, you'll have to intervene in some very open way uh, during the next five years. And I say five years because that's going to be the presidential term, um, and I don't see it getting better. I'm seeing it getting worse uh, uh, as as the time goes by. There are two cartels responsible for much of the brutality in Mexico's border region, the Sinaloa and the new generation cartel Jalisco. The roots of the Sinaloa cartel can be traced all the way back to the 1980s. It's been known by many names, including the Blood Alliance or La Alianza de Sangre. Ironically, the new generation Jalisco is just an offshoot of the Sinaloa cartel and only split off from its historical predecessor in 2010. So, uh, new generation cartel based out of uh, Jalisco uh, holds control over its territories, and when people have trouble there, they don't call the police, they call them. And they'll arrive and they'll find the guy that stole your radio out of your car, and they'll punish him physically and or even murder him. And justice will be done. And they are the law there. And when something happens, that's who the people go to. So they won. It's not that just that they're winning. They won there. The government forces go in there and they get their helicopters knocked out of the sky. Uh, they go in there with all their equipment and their elite uh, military units. And they don't come out with much. Um and uh, they will probably outlive the current federal government. Uh, Sinaloa cartel has outlived all of the uh, past governments, and it's still active. In just the past decade, the new generation has amassed a literal army's worth of foot soldiers and military-grade equipment, which they have no problem flaunting on social media. And the coronavirus pandemic has done little to slow them down. New generation cartel actually expanded and grew during the COVID epidemic because their supply chain was not interrupted. 
because they control uh, the port city of uh, Manzanillo, which is one of the main entryways to some of these uh, substances into Mexico. So you have a paramilitary uh, cartel group that can take down helicopters in the areas they can control, that have access to military-grade equipment, that have people working for them in the United States, all over the United States, trying to take control away from Sinaloa cartel uh, as far as distribution and trafficking into the U.S., um, that have clear ties and supply chains to China when it comes to drugs and fentanyl. Uh, and that's what is growing in Mexico. And once they become the dominant force, the next step in their control pattern or their control efforts is going to be taking that control into the states. And I think you're already seeing elements of that kind of being played out at a street level with you know, people getting eliminated uh, on a distribution level on the U.S. side. I mean, the U.S. is in a very volatile state right now. Now imagine adding on to onto that a war of control between two large cartel groups that want to take control of the uh, largest drug market on the planet, which is the U.S. Uh, and I think uh, I, I think people have already realized and already seen how outstretched uh, certain police forces are in certain parts of the country, and it's not unheard of uh, for people. Uh, that uh, deal in cartel activities in the U.S. Uh, to take advantage of certain uh, spaces and places where some of these uh, protests are happening to move things around, to put things into place, to take advantage of the chaotic element of the environment to eliminate people from one side or the other. And that's not uh, conspiracy theory. That's I mean, there's people out there that have documented some of this stuff going on. Um, so they are a very... I think they're one of the more clear threats that the United States has um, as far as its national security uh, currently. It's, it's, it's a very real threat. This isn't longer a, a Mexican issue. It's a, it's a regional issue. You know, it seems to, to be a foreign policy problem way long ago. It, this is a regional issue now. Ed says Mexico's ever-rotating political leadership may be partially to blame for the seemingly unchecked growth of these criminal organizations and the division they have sown at all levels of life. Now, just a few years into what he calls his American experience, he says his new home is starting to look a lot like the country he left behind, at least when it comes to our division and unrest. While he's worried, he says he's doing everything he can to help here just like he did back in Mexico. I'm three years into my American experience, and it's it's a beautiful country. Um, I thank God every day that I got the opportunity to immigrate to the U.S. Um, and I, I always kind of feel guilty, like I need to earn it, you know? So I'm always trying to find ways to make things better if I can. Right, I've, I've never lost that uh, that spirit of service. Uh, but then it's disheartening, disheartening for me to kind of travel around. And I, I did a class in Atlanta during the riots, and I actually went out there and kind of talked to a few people, both on law uh, on the law enforcement side and also on the protester side. 
and uh, you know the, the, how divided divided the country is at the moment uh, is scary, and it reminds me of some of the stuff that I saw in the country that I fled, <laughs> which is Mexico. Some of the unrest and how some people are taking advantage of the unrest to do what they do. It's scary. It's scary. It's, it's specifically if you have kids, you know, you're scared for their future. And, and, uh, I definitely picked a very interesting time to 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 try and uh, try and find my American dream. Um, I still have faith in it, though. Um, I think it's a. I think there's no there's no better country to live in, and there's no better. Uh, there's no uh, there's no better place to be in my mind, but I really, really worry about it uh, specifically, specifically with the, what's going on right now and that, the division that I see. It's interesting as a, as a as a Mexican <laughs> uh, immigrant uh, in the in, in the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, I lived in California, uh, lived in Kentucky and traveled across the country. Uh, every week I'm in a different state, so I get to see more of the United States than a lot of Americans, which is weird to, to, to kind of think about uh, being new here. From going to uh, Tennessee and, and seeing, you know, <laughs> seeing fireflies all over the hillsides in some of the most beautiful country that I've ever seen and being treated like family uh, by people that I've never really met before and just getting some of that weird uh, old-time hospitality. Uh, no judgment at all, you, you know, uh, because of where I'm from and, you know, and because I'm, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm new here at all. And then getting, uh, and then going to a place like California and getting some of the uh, second-generation uh Chicano, Mexican uh, uh, youth uh, calling me a race traitor because of my um, because of my of the way I talk about Mexico and some of the violence I saw down there. Like that's not that's not how Mexico is, and <laughs> and they're they're uh, they're outraged for me, which is fascinating and also kind of disheartening at the same time. Um, it's not all. It's, it's not all that, but that's what I've been finding in my kind of experiences. How how people are outraged for me. <laughs> um, how uh, how people assume a lot about you because of where you're from. So people assume that I'm from Mexico, so I should be completely uh, anti-gun or anti-Second Amendment uh, because I, I've seen what the guns can do to an environment like Mexico as far as the violence goes. Uh, but then I, you know, I, I had that conversation with a, a young Chicano woman who was saying that I was uh, that I was wrong and I was being hypocritical uh, when I state the fact that one of the most uh, amazing things about the U.S. is that Second Amendment. Uh, then I tell them, well, you know, just to close your eyes. Imagine you're in a ranch somewhere in uh, Michoacan and you have two beautiful daughters and uh, a truck rolls up at, in the middle of the night and two men step out armed and tell you that they're going to take uh, your daughters uh, for a ride and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, wouldn't you want to have a gun in this case? And she said, well, in that case, yes, but that's a very extraordinary case. 
Well, that's the case of most people in Mexico that live in some of these bad parts. They don't have a choice. They're they're, they're not armed. So when, you know, so you're we, we, so some some of the views that I have uh, stem from that experience, and I know what you know, I know what society can turn into, and I know one of the first things that the cartel forces do when they gain control of an environment is that they disarm everybody that doesn't work for them. And one of the things that the government does in places where they think uh, the peop- townspeople are being very uh, rowdy, just like it happened to the uh, people in Chiapas when they, you know, they started a revolution down there, is that they want to go in there and disarm people. Um, so I know where that leads, and I think uh, I think that 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 uh, that actual experience going through that has shaped some of my views. And it's pretty interesting and fascinating kind of seeing some people again, people assuming a lot about me because of where I'm from and assuming I'm going to hold uh, certain views. And when I, when, I, when I explain why, I always get this puzzled look. I think, uh, you know, I, think, uh, I think one of the best gifts you can give to yourself is to travel and see how other people live out there in the world and then come back to the U.S. so you can see how... <laughs> Um, how good you have it in a lot of ways, how it could be better in others, and uh, how, uh, how, how people like me, still to this day, uh, view the U.S. as a refuge. And uh, we work uh, our asses off to earn it. Coming up next on Alchemy of Violence. Find out why Ed left Mexico and began a new life and career in the U.S., some of the people that showed up to that class were members of uh, some federal agencies that I would always kind of envision as uh, all-knowing. And hear about a teenage meth dealer who had more in common with Houdini and who Ed credits with teaching him some valuable skills. He told me that they would do that for fun amongst themselves. So they would buy a pair of handcuffs and you know surprise each other and hang, handcuff each other to things, random objects. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.